So this is study number three of this confronting clobber critics. Uh, just a way of talking about how we talk back to those who use certain passages of scripture uh, to uh, denigrate the LGBTQ community. So uh, today we come probably to the hardest of the passages, those six passages that we are looking at in the course of our study. The first one was out of Genesis 19, which is the Sodom story, uh, the violent rape to humiliate and intimidate the angels that were visiting with Lot. And then last week we talked using a little bit of background information about Leviticus 18.22 and 20 verse 13. And I reminded you that the first part of Leviticus was the priestly code, what they were required to hold to, to be able to offer sacrifices, etc. The latter half of the book of Leviticus is more of a cultural code. It's often called the holiness code because uh, it is believed that there are two different contributors to uh, the book of Leviticus, the priestly uh, contribution in the first half of the book and the holiness tradition in the second half of the book. And we talked a little bit about this holiness code that ranges everything from uh, the way they uh, conduct their uh, sexual life uh, to how they observe their dietary laws to other things that sets them apart from some of the surrounding nations. So we said last week that uh, this holiness code uh, is designed in such a way really to help the nation of Israel to get a start into a new land as a new nation, and it is to help prevent them from following the ways of worshiping idols and, and other pagan rituals. Now, that brings us to the New Testament, and the remaining references we're going to look at are found in the writings of Paul. So you see there Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then 1 Timothy chapter 1. In many ways, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 are very, very similar. They're not really adding thing too much new. But this Romans passage here is quite, uh, quite a... Uh, literary masterpiece. And I want to share with you, like I did last week, a little bit of background material. Those of you who've been uh, studying uh, on Wednesday nights with me for a while will remember that we went through the Book of Romans not too long ago, and we had to keep in mind the purpose of the Book of Romans to understand the parts of the Book of Romans. And so I'm going to share some of that material with you, and then we're going to dive into chapter one, in particular, verses 26 and 27. Let me read that for you right now, and then we're going to kind of double back and try to uh, get a running start at it to see what it possibly is referring to. So in Romans 1, 26 and 27, it says, because of this, God gave them over. Incidentally, that phrase, God gave them over, appears three times in the text in verse 24, 26, and 28. So that's something to keep in the back of our minds. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, if we are to go on to the next verse, you'll see that even though we tend to pull those two verses out, or I don't, by we, I mean Christians often do this, uh, they pull that out as a way to heap condemnation upon the LGBTQ community, they stop reading at verse 27, but I don't want to do that. I want to read verse 28 and following, because you're going to see this is part of a catalog of different sinful behaviors, and it's a setup, really, to chapter 2, which we'll get to in a little bit. It says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, there's that repeated phrase, to a depraved mind, so that 
they do what ought not to be done. Well, what is that, Paul? Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It seems to me like uh, Paul is throwing in the whole kitchen sink here. And there's a reason for that. I'll show you in a moment. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So in this passage, what we are observing here is a catalog of sins, of which is this one that is talking about same-sex um, relationships. So here's what I want us to do. By way of introduction, the book of Romans, I think, probably carries the most punch in this topic. Um, if we can get a handle on this one, I think that the others kind of fall in line. So here's two questions that I want to ask. Do these two verses have the singular power to hold back the LGBTQ community from full inclusion in the kingdom of God? Or does this disqualify uh, uh, individuals who have same gender orientation? Uh, does this exclude them from the kingdom of God? And if you want to try to define the kingdom of God as somehow afterlife, uh, what does that mean? Secondly, do these two verses hold the key to the lock that keeps our gay brothers and sisters from being members in the church and also having leadership positions within the church? If you can hold those two questions kind of in the back of your mind, then I think it'll help us as we come to a conclusion tonight. So as you see on the screen, we must begin by asking what's going on in Rome in, uh, in particular, and why did Paul write this letter specifically? And that's going to cause us to double back. And for some of you, this will be a refresher for a couple of minutes of what we talked about when we went through Romans. So remember when we looked at the book of Romans, we had an unusual approach to how we read the book of Romans. And this came at the suggestion of Dr. Scott McKnight, who uh, wrote a book uh, that's called Reading Romans Backwards. And his suggestion was you don't get to the, to the purpose of the book of Romans until you get to the end of the book. And he suggested that you start at the end of the book and work your way uh, back to the beginning, and then all the pieces kind of fill in once you know what Paul is trying to do. Well, he says in his material that what's going on in Rome is very unique. So in AD 49, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews uh, from Rome for a period of time. And it's interesting, some of the historical sources tell us that these Jews were rioting at the instigation of a one named Crestus, you see, C-H-R-E-T-U-S. And some assume that what is meant there is Jesus Christ. There's a similarity of name there. So, you know, if you read the book of Acts, that when the gospel was preached in various parts of the Roman Empire, it wasn't received very well. And there was often pushback against Paul. And in particular, there was a riot in the city of Ephesus that you can read about in the book of Acts. And what you find is that every time Paul uh, would preach, he was often pushed out of the city and he had to move along. Well, some of the individuals that pushed back on him were those that were devotedly uh, Jewish and uh, saw Christianity as a threat to, um, to their Judaism. And so many Jews often did kind of push back and there were riots. Uh, sometimes Paul would have to escape um, by an inch of his life. 
Well, if the Jewish people push back on the movement of Paul's missionary journeys, then possibly what occurred was Christian Jews, those who had come to faith, also were lumped into national Jews. And so between 49 and 54 AD, all the Jews, can you imagine this? All the Jews in the city of Rome were expelled from the city. They had to leave. Uh, they, um, they left their jobs. They left their homes. Uh, they had to find uh, refuge somewhere. In other words, they became refugees in many respects. And what was left behind was these small house churches that were established in Rome on their own. Paul had not been to Rome yet, so he didn't start these, but uh, individuals that were converted started some house churches in Rome, and that included both Jews and Gentiles. Those Jews were expelled, and they had to, uh, to go on the run, and that left these house churches with Gentiles only, and that made a significant impact upon the way these Gentile house churches for this period of time would begin to grow in their faith and begin to um, exercise leadership uh, regarding uh, the house churches. So Claudius in 54 AD will die and the edict is lifted. And these Jews, uh, both national and Jewish Christians, made their way back to the city of Rome. And when they made their way back to the city of Rome, all of a sudden, as they try to merge back into the house churches in Rome, they found that it changed. Over a course of five years, things change, as we all know. Uh, and it the house churches became much more Gentile in orientation. And without these Jewish um, Christians there, uh, obviously there were some conflicts that arose because the Jewish Christians were still trying to keep a lot of the law. And so one of the things that happened was a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles in the house churches in Rome. So this is very important to keep in mind. One of the reasons that Paul is writing the book of Romans is to try to bring these two sides back together uh, and, and somehow reconcile a divided church. So let me see if you have some questions or comments uh, on this background, because it's, it, it's going to play into how we read this passage in a moment. Any thoughts? So one of the things that we talked about when we did study Romans is that there is a pretty big deal that is made between two groups of people that Paul calls the strong and the weak. And in chapter 14, keep your thumb in chapter one and go over to chapter 14 of Romans. You see here that one of the things that Paul is going to do is talk about these two groups of people. Beginning in verse one, it says, "Except the one who is weak, who uh, whose rather whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables." What he's referring to there is the Jewish people that are trying to keep the dietary laws, even though they are Christians. Verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt. That's an important word you might want to highlight in your Bible. The one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge. There's another term you might want to circle, the one who does, for God has accepted them both. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is make, able to make them stand. Now, this little paragraph here, he talks about strong and weak, and he divides it along ethnic, uh, ethnic, ethnic lines. So the strong are the Gentiles because they have the liberty to eat meat that is offered to idols and things like that. The weak 
And this is not a moralistic judgment. It is a descriptive judgment. The weak are the Jewish people who are still trying to keep these Levitical laws, and uh, they are offended that the Gentiles are not uh, sensitive to that. And so the two words I told you to circle is uh, contempt and judge. So they're both uh, holding each other in contempt, and they're both judging each other. So what is happening here is these two groups of people are not getting along, and all of this animosity is built up, and Paul needs to somehow bring them together. So how is he going to do that? How is he going to bring reconciliation? And he's got a very personal reason why he wants to do that. If you just go over to chapter 15 now in Romans, go down to verse 23, here's why he's writing this letter. In particular, it is a pastoral letter. This is not a book written to establish a systematic theology contrary to the love of theologians wanting to use Romans to categorize different theological topics. It's a pastoral letter. It's written for a specific church in a specific time. And he wants them to get back together because he has a personal reason. Verse 23, chapter 15. But now that there is no place for me to work in these regions... In other words, he wants to move on from Asia Minor, where he established all those churches. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way, and I know that when I come, I will come in full measure of the blessing of Christ. You know what? The reason Paul wants to go to Rome is to check up on the individual house churches in Rome, certainly. But he also wants them to support him on his missionary journey to Spain. So this is uh, a trip to raise money. And it is to help him to go on to Spain and to preach the gospel in Spain. So how is he going to do that? Well, he's got he's to encompass a vision where both sides that don't agree with each other and are arguing with each other are on a level playing field. Okay, let me stop there. Some thoughts or questions or comments? So here's what he wants to do. He wants to plant more churches. And as he does so, the second half of the book of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, is all about how they're to get along and how they're to remember that they all have spiritual gifts and things to contribute and that they should welcome one another and they should stop judging one another. It could, I guess it could be summarized in chapter 12, verse uh, 14 and 15. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And here it comes, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Very, very practical letter. The practical letter is don't judge, love each other, accept each other, welcome each other and live in harmony. Okay, so that's the real purpose of the book of Romans. So why all of this theology in chapters 1 through 11? There's a very basic reason for it. If you're going to get each other to drop their conceit, drop their contempt, 
and drop their judging, you got to put everybody on the same level. Okay. One can't be considered higher than the other. So having said that, the content that you find in the book of Romans is not primarily abstract uh, theology, even though that's the way we use the book of Romans so many times. We develop these systems like the Romans Road. We develop systematic theology. We do long diatribes on uh, justification, uh, propitiation, reconciliation, some big words that are found in the book of Romans. But that's not the primary reason why he is writing it. The primary reason why he is writing it is to uh, bring this faith community back together. So you can see on the slide here, Paul was pushing and pulling at times, kicking this fractured community toward reconciliation with repeated admonishments to not judge one another, but to live in harmony. So the content of the book of Romans is not really about getting you into heaven after you die. It's about the things that are necessary to bring two opposing sides together in Christian unity. And when we keep that in mind, the content makes a lot more sense. Now, having said that, What's happening now, let's go back to chapter one, okay? Here's our verse for this week. What is happening in chapter one is a rhetorical device. Remember I said that Paul is throwing in the kitchen sink here to try to get every sin he can think of when he's writing this letter down on paper. It's a rhetorical device. Jews were great rhetorical um, debaters. And uh, that's part of rabbinical tradition, of which Paul was a rabbi. And what we find is he takes all of this information so that he can set up the Jews by condemning the Gentiles in chapter one. So in chapter one, that catalog of sins that you see there is in particular directed against the Gentiles, but it's a setup. And the setup comes to chapter two. Let's take a look at chapter two, verse one. It says here, you therefore, and he, when you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. It's a summary of what's come before. And what it is saying is in light of all the dark corners of Gentile pagan existence and worship, it would be easy to just condemn them as dark, pagan, vile, evil people. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Chapter two is directed toward the Jews. And he's saying, you think you're high and mighty and you think that you're above this type of behavior, but you're not because you do the exact same thing. And you're no better than the Gentiles either. And how do we know it's the Jews? Well, if you jump down to verse 17, he then actually calls out who he's addressing. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh-oh. 
you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, all you got to do is read the Old Testament. And you know that the Jews were guilty of some of the very same things. And what Paul is doing here is setting the trap to level the playing field so that when the good news comes about in chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the free gift of God is eternal life. It applies to everyone evenly. It's not a two-tiered system. Okay, let me stop there for a second. Does that make sense to everybody? Have some questions or comments there? Okay, so how does that pertain to the clobber passage? Here we go. So what he is doing in this section of Romans is basically heaping blame and destroying the boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. And the two verses are part of this larger section of chapters one through three of Romans. And it has a goal. It really does. It is whipping up an emotional response by the Jews toward the Gentiles. I mean, can you imagine here when they hear this about all these pagan Gentiles are kind of in the back going, yeah, yeah, we're better than they are. Yeah, yeah. You tell them, Paul, you tell them, right? And then he turns it on them in chapter two. And all of a sudden, what we find is that Paul is using this discourse to really cause them to look inside themselves and to humble them so that they will then reach out and love one another, forgive one another, reconcile with each other. Now, what you will find is this passage here in chapter one is borrowed from an older uh, uh, piece of literature called the Wisdom of Solomon. We don't have the Wisdom of Solomon in our Bible. It is a part of the Apocrypha that's found in the Catholic Bible. Remember, we've said on a number of occasions that uh, the Catholic Bible has more books than the Protestant Bible. So they include these uh, books. Now, I'm not going to bore you to death this evening, but I want you to look first um, at chapter one, how it begins here, when he talks about uh, the glory of God that is seen in creation. So jump up to verse 21 of chapter one. It says, uh, let me jump up to verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile and their foolish heart were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, uh, idolatry is at the heart of this. Uh, God's glory is seen in the created order. But they take that glory and they uh, whittle it down to things that they see around them and the animal world and so forth and make idols out of them. Well, you might not know this, but if you were to read and if you have somewhere in your home or you can look it up on the Internet, the book, The Wisdom of Solomon. If you were to read chapter 13, verses 1 through 19, and chapter 14, verses 18 to 27, and again, I'm not going to burden you with that, but you, what you're going to find is the information there is parallel to what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. It is quite likely that Paul is using this as a resource, and I'll just read a couple of verses in uh, the Wisdom of Solomon 
excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan. I love that translation. Nor did they recognize the artisan while paying attention to his works. But they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or the turbulent waters or the luminaries of heaven were gods that rule the world. I'll jump down. Verse five says, for from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. And then in verse 10 of that passage, it says, but miserable with their hopes set on dead things are those who give the name gods, plural, to the works of human hands, gold and silver fashioned with skill and likeness of animals. So whether Paul uh, is uh, paraphrasing the wisdom of Solomon or not, or whether he's taking some of the ideas from it, what we find is it, it has parallel information to it. And with that in mind, he is using it as a way of setting up the Gentiles to then hit the Jews in the nose. So if we can keep that in mind, what we'll find when we come now to the two verses that are clobber verses, we all already need to know in the back of our mind that what he has already said is Gentiles failed to know God. They turned to idolatry. They engaged in immorality as a part of that idolatry, and they received their uh, just punishment as a result of it. So if you can kind of hold that in your thinking, then now we approach these two verses and we understand the larger context. Any questions, comments? Is it clear as mud or can I say it a different way um, to clarify anything? A, a comment. It, it, it's kind of funny that you're, you're taking the approach that you're taking because when I watched the video from uh, Justin Lee, he kind of took the approach of like in verse uh, 20, 22, 23, 21 through 24, he, he was talking about how, you know, it, this is all, you know, idolatry and, and, and people like forsaking God. And because of that, you know, because it says in 24, therefore God gave them over to sinful desires. Mm -hmm. and, and he kind of took the approach that it's because of their idolatry, which is kind of similar to the passage in Leviticus. Mm -hmm. um, where it was, you know, kind of like an idolatry. So that's kind of, it, it's funny that you're going this way because I was expecting you to go the, the way that I, <laughs> well, I, I just, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, I, think that's a, I, I think that's a very legitimate point that Justin Lee is making, that the context preceding verses 26 and 27 has idolatry in mind. And um, with that, then, is um, this verse 24. So even before we get to verse 26, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That's an important um, thing to keep in mind as well. Whatever is being done, it is degrading. And he says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things. So we know he's talking about idolatry here rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So I think Justin Lee is on to something there. Uh, I think that Gentiles in general, before the gospel became a part of their experience, they just did what Romans did. And that is they just worship false gods because there was a whole pantheon of gods that the Romans worshiped. And um, that would not be unusual at all for Gentiles to follow the way of their father and their grandfather. And that is uh, the worship of idols. And the Romans also had some uh, gods 
that had very elaborate temples and what we know from um, archaeology and other resources, many of those temples did have temple prostitution that was associated with it. So I think that's a good point, is to keep in mind that what Paul is talking about is idolatry and the types of practices that go along with that. So yeah, you're just giving me a different way of thinking about this than like reading Romans backwards. That's kind of an interesting concept to me. It was to me too. And this book is not very old by Scott McKnight. Uh, Scott McKnight, um, he's a professor up at uh, North Eastern Seminary in Illinois. It's, uh, um, I think that's the one. I might be wrong on that. It's outside Chicago. But um, anyways, he is a very uh, a, a very good scholar. Um, he's got blogs that you could subscribe to and stuff too. He's always writing stuff. But um, he, he really made a good point. And if you're interested in that, um, on our website, if you go to the Wednesday study, study tab, there are those uh, lessons on the book of Romans there. And I'd be happy to print out the handouts that I gave out because that's not on the website, but I do have it on my computer if that's something you're interested in. So, um, okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. Now we get to the nitty gritty. So we're holding tension in our mind here about how Paul's leveling the playing field to, between the Jew and the Gentile. Imagine Phoebe, the one that is delivering the letter of Romans to the Roman house churches, and each house church, she gets up and she reads it. Can you imagine the pathos every time she reads this letter in these different contexts? Because you have different groups of people now that the Jews are allowed to come back in to the house churches after they had been expelled and exiled for a while. Can you imagine the type of conversation that must have generated in each of these house churches? All right. So now, verse 26. Along with context and circumstance, you have translation. So in verse 26, it says here, because of this, God gave them over. I'm reading the NIV translation here. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now, just like the word abomination that we talked about last week, um, this word here has been used by different translation teams uh, in different ways. So you see a few examples here uh, in the English Standard Version. Uh, it's translated dishonorable. In the New Revised Standard Version, it's translated degrading. The NIV uses the term shameful. Now, it's interesting that each, in other words, there's some elasticity to this word that it is used in other contexts. And, and so translation teams are wondering, I wonder what Paul has in mind here. Is he talking about honor and dishonor? Is he talking about something degradable um, versus uh, honorable? Um, is it shameful? So each translation team has translated it in different ways. So even there, we're already in trouble because not even translation teams can agree on how this should be translated. The Greek word here is atimia. Um, and when you look at cross references in, in Greek, Koine Greek, it's not so much about being something morally reprehensible as culturally shameful. In other words, uh, there is a, a wide variety of different things that cause us to say, now that's disgusting. That's disgusting. And it could be something small, really. 
that we feel is disgusting, like we talked about last week in Leviticus, uh, something that is culturally unacceptable. Or it could be something that is really, really threatening to the community. So um, let me give you a couple examples. Remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was a song uh, that this guy came out with that uh, said, pants on the ground, pants on the ground, looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. Well, that's one way of saying, oh, now that's, that's disgusting when you can see a guy's underwear. But that's nowhere near what's happening in our culture now where there are more guns in our country than there are people. Had another had another uh, shooting up at Michigan State University. Just was it yesterday or day before yesterday? And you might say that's not only disgusting, that is evil. So there's a wide range within any cultural expression of something that is that shameful. That shouldn't be done in public. You know, some people have problems when a new mother is going to breastfeed their baby out in public. Oh, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, that type of thing. So what I'm trying to tell you is this here has something attached to it that is revealed in the rest of the list that Paul gives beginning in verse 29. And that is, these are pretty pretty vile type of things. The wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. That's not a kid with his pants too low, you know, uh, so you can see his underwear. That's not a mother breastfeeding her baby out in public, even if that's not something you want to see. These are things that are threatening uh, the health and safety of the community. And if Paul is lumping all of this together in such a way to say Gentiles are guilty of idolatry, and as a result of following, we become like the gods we worship. And if they follow these gods, there are certain natural consequences that come as a result of it. And that's what he lists in the following verses after verses 26 and 27. Now, this word atemia in Greek, though, in other places, it is used in a court of law. And it's not even something criminal, but seen as something worthless, something that should be disregarded. You know, the type of things you see on Judge Judy. Are you following what I'm saying? Those type of things that are brought against other people that when we watch it, we go, oh, for heaven's sakes. How, how is this even making a show? Good grief. So there's a wide range, is what I'm trying to say, of uses of this word. And probably because of the setup to chapter two, it's seen as something that went against Jewish cultural customs. Ah, keep chapters 14 and 15 in mind, the strong and the weak, the animosity that's already there, because one is eating meat sacrificed to idols, others feel that that is a shameful, dishonorable, degrading thing, whatever way you want to translate this word, if, you, if it was in that chapter. Okay, let me stop and see if you have some thoughts there. Okay, so what are these shameless acts? So now in verse 27, he says he's given them over to uh, sinful desires in verse 24. Um, God gave them over to shameful lusts in verse 26. And then it says here, in the same way, the men also abandon natural relationships with women and inflamed with lust for one another. Um, what we find here is this idea of something that is indecent, 
something that shouldn't be done in public. Now, another Greek word is being used here um, that is describing the type of behavior that is found within these pagan temples. Um, so I'll come back to this, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural one. But right now, they are seen here as committing shameful acts. There you see it in verse 27. This uh, behavior that's indecent, shameful acts, um, is related to shameful lust. So here what we find is maybe what's going on here is this same-sex behavior is being done out in public as part of pagan temple idol worship. And as Tony just mentioned about Justin Lee's book, that goes back to the prior verses as well, where we find this uh, worship of false gods. Now, these shameless acts mentioned here are seen as outside the boundaries of good and healthy sexual expressions. So, in other words, these are not actions of love. These And he says so right here in verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lust. Now, when it says God gave them over, doesn't mean God abandoned them. What it means is God let them go their own way. So think of a rebellious teenager that constantly won't listen to their parents. And finally, the parents say, okay, but I'm telling you, there are certain consequences that are coming. I, I, I've done all I can do, but you're just going to have to learn the hard way. You're going to have to go to the University of Black and Blue. I mean, you're just going to have to learn through the uh, the bumps that and, and uh, things that you go through. And that's what I think God is saying here. You're going to have to learn the hard way. So he goes ahead and says, you go ahead, live out those type of things. And you're going to see where it leads you. So here what we find is something that is indecent because it is being done in public and it pulls other people into it. Okay. Now, questions or comments before we get to the next slide? Now I'm gonna come back to this contrary to nature. That's another play. That's another vague thing here. What does he mean? Well, because in verse 27, uh, it says men who exchanged, uh, who are uh, rather abandoned natural relationships with women, we assume that in verse 26, that it's a relationship uh, women with women in um, verse 26. However, got to remember this is a Jewish context. Um, you have to remember this is the first century. The Greek word here is parafusis, which means against nature. Now, what does Paul have in mind here? So the traditional interpretation assumes this to be lesbianism. Uh, you know, a not natural, heterosexual relationships are natural. However, in the first century, um, it has a little bit different interpretation. A male and female that has sexual intercourse is natural, especially in the Jewish world, when it has the potential for procreation. When God said, fill the earth, Jews would see that as a creation command, that sexual relationships are to be used to bring new life into the world. Now, that's not a concept that's only in Genesis, or is it only in the scriptures? That's the idea that goes back to Plato, too, in Greek philosophy. So if a man was having sexual relationships with his wife uh, in parts of her body, whether it is uh, oral or anal, uh, it doesn't have the potential for procreation. So it is very possible that this verse is not 
necessarily talking about lesbianism. It could be talking about the unnatural sexual relationships that don't have the potential for procreation. That's one legitimate option to interpret. So as you can see at the bottom of the slide here, women exchanging natural relationships, that is the procreative sexual activity, for those that are contrary to nature, non-procreative sexual activity, could mean that it is a shameful thing when a woman has anal intercourse or even oral uh, type of activity because it doesn't fulfill God's command to procreate, okay? Does, does that make sense to you? We just automatically lump it in with the next verse, but it, there are other interpretive options there that could go hand in hand with this. Well, that's against nature. That's not the way God created men and women to use their sexual activity. So in ancient pagan temples, were there alternate sexual activities going on with temple prostitutes? Very possible. Very possible. Thoughts there? I think you're beginning to see this isn't a simple black and white type of verse. It's got a lot of moving parts to it. So let's talk a little bit about temple prostitution. That's a fun topic, right? Um, so in the Greco-Roman world, all these temples that are dedicated to the different gods and goddesses often have sexual rituals that are attached to them. And some of these activities were central components to the worship of those gods. Remember when we talk about the Old Testament, why the Asherah pole was so important and why were the Jews so attracted to the worship of Baal and Asherah? Because they were seen as fertility gods. And in the ancient world, the more kids that you had, the better off you could be to work the land, especially in agriculture and those type of things. And even to our early history as a country where we had a lot bigger families, kids were seen as a blessing to work on the farm. More hands make lighter work. And so in the ancient world, procreation is quite important and barrenness is assumed to be a curse. So when you come to these pagan temples, a lot of this sexual activity, it was believed, was to rouse the passion of the gods, thus producing rain that would uh, produce crops that would allow uh, the people to have food on their table. And and there's, there was often mysticism and, and superstition that in the worship of these gods, it would open the womb of the women so that they would be able to have um, uh, reproductive uh, success, that type of thing. So in any given temple, you see there at the bottom of the, uh, the slide, you could find both male and female prostitutes that engaged in cultic rituals. Some of that involved orgies, but it was all related to idol worship because of the superstition that there wasn't one god, there was many gods, and you'd want to get the attention of the rain gods. You want to get uh, the attention of the fertility gods, because it would produce the type of things that you need, children and crops. So um, that's why temple prostitution is such a big deal. Is it related to sexual lust? Sure, but it's more than that. It is also related to what this could produce from the gods that they were worshiping. Does that make sense to everybody? Does that help? So um, that might be what's going on here a little bit too, in light of the uh, context of false worship. Okay. 
Now, there's a cultural thing, too. And this is related back to what happened in Sodom. Roman citizens uh, were allowed to have sexual slaves. And many of those relationships were uh, exploitative. Uh, they were relationships with non-Roman citizens. Many of them were slaves or gladiators or refugees, different people like that. And what's interesting in the Roman culture was Roman men were free to enjoy sex with other males without a perceived loss of masculinity or social status, as long as they took the dominant or penetrative role in the relationship, as long as they were continued to seen, be seen as superior. Now, I want to read just a footnote here that is from the first century study Bible. Uh, the notes in this uh, study Bible were put together by Kent Dobson. And he says here, uh, another possibility, uh, another possible reading is that Paul was addressing pedestry, a fairly common practice of older Roman or Greek men having intimate or erotic relationship with younger boys. However, Paul is clearly speaking about unnatural sex relationships among males and females, and therefore seems to be speaking more generally about any type of same-sex practice. Well, that, that's his perspective. But he recognizes that there was a cultural thing that was going on. Well, how do we know this was happening? So the book of Romans is written about 57 to 60 AD. In AD 79, there was the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And as it buried the community, um, archaeologists have been uh, uncovering a lot of what was buried under that volcanic eruption. And what they found was a lot of erotic art. They found a wide variety of different things that suggested communal baths and brothels were a common experience in the Roman world. So they found things like this, uh, these type of uh, paintings and things that were on walls that depicted uh, same-sex activity that was a part of the culture. Some of it was pedestry. Some of it was temple uh, worship, that type of thing. But you can see even in these mosaics here that um, it's very apparent that these are sexual activities that are being portrayed. So this is ancient, um, this is ancient graphics that was used uh, in many of the venues that you find in the Roman world. So the eruption of Mount Vesuvius uh, uh, kind of froze this in time and allowed archaeologists to be able to find it. So what these archaeological sites are doing is it is helping us to kind of see what the culture was like just a couple decades after when Paul wrote this letter. And um, that might come into play here as well. Thoughts? Any thoughts on this? All right. So here's my summary, okay? Homosexuality in ancient Rome has a big difference because of all these moving parts than the idea of same-sex relationships here in the West. We are not worshiping gods. We're not trying to get gods uh, to respond by our erotic activity and, and that type of thing. So that's something that's important to keep in mind. Secondly, Romans believed that uninhibited sexual exploration, whether you were married or not, was a good thing. So sexual relations for males in particular, because this is a patriarchal society, can occur on two levels, at home with one's wife. And the primary objective of that relationship with the wife was what? 
procreation to produce kids. On the other hand, um, there was the other activity that was done in the public realm that was done for pleasure. And that's making sense of uh, this idea of sinful desires and shameful lusts, that this activity outside the home was something that was done for pure pleasure, where within the home, one's wife was the vehicle to produce children. So here's my, my take on this. At the center of sexual relationships among the Roman and Greeks was dominance. And this idea of being superior and using that sexual relationship for pleasure alone to the humiliation of those that they used as their toys um, would lower the status of that person while it elevated the status of another. That has not really gone away. Think about the whole Jeffrey Epstein saga. Think about private gatherings. In this case, it's with young women, but nonetheless, it's dominance of rich, powerful people that are using other people for their own satisfaction. And my personal opinion is I think that's what is going on here because of the other sins that are mentioned that follow in verse 29. Those are very degrading type things. Think about deceit and malice and those type of things that put other people down. So that's my take on this passage. It is by far probably the hardest passage in the whole Bible to sort through and think through. Um, and I've given it my best shot to you tonight, but I think you can do a lot more reading on it. And you'll find that there are a lot of moving parts to this. It's not a black and white thing. It's not simplistic. It's very complicated. So let me stop the share and get us all in view here. And see if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, criticisms, uh, whatever you might be thinking. Anyone? So just keep in mind that this is one verse of six verses in the entire Bible. And when we talk about two people of the same gender, that love each other, that serve each other, who are committed to each other. We're not talking about the same world as the Old and the New Testament. It's a very different environment. And no matter where you land on this topic, so if somebody's watching this on YouTube later, um, even if you land differently than what I'm saying tonight, that's okay. It's But please be aware that this is complicated. It's very complicated. And it's not a simplistic thing. When I hear people say, God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve, I just want to throw up. Okay? That is kindergarten. Stop. You just have to stop. And you have to come to grips with material and wrestle with it. So, um, there. That That's my diatribe. So any other thoughts that you have? It's, it's the same way when they say that recite the verse, you know, man should not lay with another man as with a woman. That that always pops up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, in two weeks, remember next week, we're not going to have an online study, mm -hmm. but in two weeks, we'll come to the uh, next verse, which is in first Corinthians. And, um, what you might want to do prior to that is do a little historical study and look online and see when the term homosexual is starting to be used within our country and our culture. Keep in mind a date, 1947. Okay. And we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit because it, this too will play into the 1 Corinthians 6 passage where 
the term begins to make its way into the Bible, but it wasn't there until 1947. So um, we'll we'll come to that in, in two weeks. Any final thoughts? You are troopers. You are real <laughs> troopers. You really are. This is it's not easy stuff, but think think of how much better off you are that you wrestled with it. And just know we love you, each and every one of you. And we love our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. All right. If nothing else, I'll call it a night, okay? Okay. All good right. night. Hey, good Have night. a good night. We'll see you Sunday. Take care. Yep.